0: and welcome to the Mic Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project-to-product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tasktop, and and bestselling author of Project to Product, how to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption with the Flow Framework. On today's episode, I'm joined by none other than John Willis, Senior Director of the Global Transformation Office at Red Hat. John was one of the earliest cloud evangelists and is considered one of the founders of the DevOps movement. In addition to authoring seven IBM Redbooks, John is the co-author of the infamous DevOps Handbook, as well as Beyond the Phoenix Project. I've been a long-term fan of John's work, follow him closely, and always learn something valuable and gain some new insights from my discussions with him. So I hope that you enjoy this one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Project to Project podcast. I'm thrilled to have John Willis here today. John is one of the main contributors to what has been our movement, working with Gene Kim on Beyond the Phoenix Project, the DevOps Handbook, one of the seminal pieces of the entire enterprise DevOps movement on scaling DevOps and enterprises. And I think to me, the biggest thing is that from the start, John has been one of the foremost scholars of this entire movement. So. Every single time that I catch one of his conference presentations, one of his podcasts or or just a conversation, I have learned something new and profound and even over the last couple of weeks. So I think where John's been on his journey and where he's pushing our entire seniors, which he calls this collective genius that's been created by all the people, all the various scholars of DevOps. I think John has actually been one of the main people pushing that bubble and having us learn more and more things on this journey as larger and larger organizations try to adopt some of these key practices. So John, thrilled to have you here today and for us to be learning from you. So welcome.
1: Yeah, thanks, Mick. No, I mean, you talk about the journey, right? The journey is, is a pretty interesting thing, right? We, we met through the DevOps Enterprise Summit, and you meet a lot of people early on, and you sort getting little tidbits of their mindset. And then I knew you were coming out with your book, and I think I got an early copy of it in version. And, and I looked at your background, and I'm like, you know, this is the part where I make you blush a little bit. But I looked at your background, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is a real computer scientist. <laughs> anyway, we don't have to dwell on it. But sometimes I think that when I'm talking to people, you just don't know their background. And then you, I, I'm going to really squeeze in like 15 seconds. I was on a panel once with a gentleman who was part of the, he was the founder of, of one of the original cloud providers. Turned out he was a, a biologist that worked on the, the breaking the DNA. And I'm going to pattern order, argue with him, but I don't know who he is. So I go off the panel and they tell me, oh, but you know, that guy that we were on the panel you're arguing with, he was one of the people who, who decoded the whole DNA thing. My, my God, I would have never asked him those questions. I would have never argued with him had I known that. But anyway, the journey is interesting and I've learned a lot from
0: you. Thank you, John. And I think early in my career, I think we were definitely trying to add a key part of science is measurement, right? In computer science, I always had this big frustration of a lack of measurement, right? A lack of whether we're getting better. So I think where we've really connected on this journey is how do we provide more meaningful measurement? How do we know whether an experiment's working or not. How do we both provide the conceptual framework for measurement as well as as a way of tracking outcomes? So I think the way that you've actually injected that into how people think of DevOps is again, I think to me it has been one of the most profound contributions and it's been our frequent topic of conversation. So I would love to dig into that because I think that's been really impressive. The way that you've talked about and conceptualized the three ways of DevOps, right? That to me, to some people, that might seem like a old hat now, to me that's just as relevant today. There's not a conversation I have with a customer or anything around the foundations of the way that we should be working, the way the software should be built, that doesn't explicitly refer back to those three ways of DevOps, as well as what you did in terms of the DevOps handbook and how we should think about measuring and tracking value and so on. So if you could just speak a little bit to that, basically you sort of set the high marker at that point with the DevOps handbook, how you're thinking about that's evolved. And then of course, the conversations that we've been having of how all of this helps pave the path for flow and where we actually need to augment the way we measure beyond what you put out there in the DevOps handbook.
1: It's even beyond measurement, right? Which is Dr. Spear has been a big part of our community, right? Gene bringing him in. He wrote that the famous, I always get the name wrong, but it was decoding the Toyota production DNA, some variant of that for HBR, Harvard Business Review. In it, he basically talked about the community of scientists. He used the term three times. And at one point he said, Toyota was a community of scientists continually experimenting. I think the reason we connect is because we both honor the notion of scientific thinking. Everything's an experiment. And so the DevOps Handbook was an interesting, like, let's take all the case studies. I think it was Patrick, myself, and Gene who originally formulated the three ways, although Gene put it in the Phoenix Project, which I didn't have anything to do with that. But in Beyond the Phoenix Park, we've we studied more of the science behind this. But it's all about the science. But the Devin's Handbook was about giving people a reason to be able to see things. It's about simplicity. There's this contrast between simplicity. I know and know Gene and you referenced me as a boundary spanner. Really, all I'm able to do is try to take complex ideas and put them in the simplicity. So now you can work your way back into the hard stuff. right? And I think that's the, I know that's what me and you, I think, share in our sort of quest for breaking down and and following this sort of science of what we do in IT.
0: Absolutely. I think there's been this notion that just the complexity of enterprise IT makes these things very hard to measure, very hard to experiment with and so on. But I think both of our experiences are different, right? Where to me, one of the, most important tenets of science that applies to this is falsifiability. right Lots of people talk about experiments if you don 't have a way of quickly falsifying an experiment and knowing whether you were right or, or you were wrong you 've got a problem because you can 't learn quickly enough without falsifiability that, that comes through measurement so I think some of those key stories in the devops handbook i 'll show that and this is actually one of the reasons it was such a with project to product it was it was such a P for me that so much of what I was hearing in the way other things were being presented in the community was all success stories, right? If we don't actually share failure stories and how we learned that that this was a failure, we're speaking more marketing talk than we are speaking more science talk and actually learning. I think the challenge that you and I both deal with day to day in, in helping organizations is actually one of really high, how to go from this really high complexity to a simplicity that you can then experiment with and falsify. Because we know very large tech giants do that at enormous scale. Somehow they get it done. So,
1: thanks for clarifying, for that Because you know, I'm a big fan of Deming, as you know, and the PDCA is scientific method, right? Like, they just is plan, do, check, act, right? Like, it's the tenets of scientific method. When you asked me the original question about the Davis Handbook, it reminded me that in the early days, I would say the beauty of this book is we didn't just pick the top 50. There was like 50 case studies or 48 case studies. We didn't pick the 50, like, Oh, we did X and we won. We did DevOps, it was awesome. We covered a lot of sort of tragedies in the DevOps Enterprise Summit and the community that we're both involved in, even when we're selecting some of the presentations. Like if we see something like, we tried DevOps and it was amazing and we won, you get pushed to the bottom of the list. We've been failing miserably for four years, but I think we're making progress now and I think we're going to get it next year. Those are the stories that are the most compelling. So, yeah, you're exactly right. It is scientific thinking. Scientific thinking at its core is getting to the truth, the failure, as quick as possible so that you can iterate faster.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think flow feedback, continual learning, I think it's a more accessible, uh, more compelling version of that PDCA loop. So the interesting thing that I think we've been learning over the last few years is we need to find problems with the flow and feedback loop, right, with the PDCA loop, because Sometimes organizations are using the excuse of their complexity, of the difficulty of measurement, and so on. One of the things I definitely noticed that motivated me to put the flow framework out there and the flow metrics out there is that if in the PDCA loop we were only measuring, say, from code commit to code deploy, we did not have a big enough loop. The common failure mode I saw of that is that teams would start moving very fast and actually get better in their DevOps automation. We'll touch on how that actually needed to get bigger, right, than some of your... I really want to make sure we have some of your new ideas around governance, for example, right? that that needs to be within a DevOps loop. But that the business would just go off and do their own thing because they actually weren't part of the loop because they weren't getting measured as part of code commit to code deploy. So the kind of toil that DevOps teams would have waiting on meetings getting rescheduled, on upstream bottlenecks, on business analysis not being done, on some requirement changing in seemingly flippant ways. I realized if we didn't actually expand what we measure, we would start hitting up against these walls of doing a local optimization in that smaller PDCA loop rather than actually getting to an end-to-end flow. So can you just share some of the things that you've got your ruler analogy. Can you share some of what you've learned in terms of organizations who are trying to do really well, but again, not bringing enough of the organization or the business on board, so.
1: Yeah, no, if you go back maybe seven years ago, eight years ago, DevOps movement's getting started. We're all sort of getting our, our sea legs on what means what. We all have tremendous amount of background coming in, right? I mean, one of the first, incarnations of i guess science was the dora the the accelerate which was the lead time deploys change success rate failure right and that was good because we really did actually start saying devops does have at least some codifiable science and again five six seven years ago this was good because we were opening up a discussion about sort of measurement in a way that everybody could again simplicity four variables right i mean today i walk into sites and i'm like hey Don't try to do the business to this, to that, to that metric if you can't get these four working across. But as we mature, you start realizing those, in no disrespect, are latent indicators, right? If you're tracking commit to production or your MTTR, mean time to restore or whatever, TTR, these are sort of aggregate and they start getting loosely correlated because you start thinking about, like, what's the difference between a lead time that's five minutes and one that's 18 minutes. I don't really know. If you ever watched any John Osbars or Richard Cook's work about why they don't like MTTR, right? Because now they could show like an incident could be happening for like two days before it actually happens. And then somebody writes down on a napkin when it started. But the point is, actually, it was Dominica de Grandis who I, I love. She sat me down at one conference a few years ago and I'm like, okay, tell me about flow metrics. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is like, this is the missing piece. This is the next evolution, right? Because great, you start tracking lead time in the aggregate. You can start finding that it at the aggregation level, you could start finding that like it starts losing its value. But tell me about what's happening in between. Tell me the sort of waste. And I fell in love with your flow metrics and how that whole concept because those become, you start getting more scientific about the measurement. Like if I'm seeing anomalies on lead time, if I'm doing something like statistical process control, which nobody does, but if I am doing that, right, I could see some anomalous behavior or patterns happening. But that's still lead time by average or from the mean, right? Like drive everybody crazy, but statistical control three sigma from the from the mean, upper or lower. If I see patterns, well, what do I do and see the patterns? Okay, lead time is getting a little wonky. <laughs> but the flow metrics like allow me to sort of okay, let me see what's wonky here. Wow! All of a sudden, we moved like Teresa's desk from the fourth floor to the eighteenth floor, right? And now all of a sudden, like there's this weird waste and wait time happening. Yeah. Anyway, I think that Flow Metrics is absolutely crystal clear. The next stage of this process, when you talk about that ruler analogy, the one thing I do, and we talked about this, and I'd love to see you investigate this more. And I know you are. Is the one other problem I have, like maybe the next evolution, okay, we get flow metrics built in from commit to deploy, right? Now we're getting to find out these weird edge cases like Teresa's desk got moved and Teresa is a bottleneck and we didn't even know that. Like these are things that were in the Toyota way and a lot of the Toyota books about somebody having a impromptu warehouse in between the supply chain, right? And then they didn't realize that it actually delayed the just in time because somebody oh, put it. Really? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, this great the- story. Golrat tells a couple. There's a couple in I, I think tore it away. I, I can't remember where they all come from, but they found that like the lead time of some of the parts were getting delayed. And then when he did an investigation, somebody had put up a temporary like office. And you literally like just in time process was broken because whatever the so automation carts or back then it was it was actually physical little jeeps or whatever whatever they drove around to fill the carts the kanban carts or whatever they had to go around in a different way and this just showed up as lagging indicators but it was the investigation it was the detail investigation the value stream mapping if you will that showed them oh look at this last november we put up this stupid little temporary office now filling up the just-in-time buckets that's the sort of teresa does a bunch of work and she's on the fourth floor everybody knows she's there now since she's on the 18th floor and we don't realize that we've just slowed down. But anyway, getting to the ruler analogy. The thing is, is from commit to deploy, right? Or commit to production, whatever you want to measure, is that that's great. But if you think about where all the work comes, especially in the, the more legacy you find, is in ideation. Or that whole process and the waste in ideation is, again, my analogy I gave to you is you take a 12-inch ruler. We're looking for efficiencies in the last two inches when we go from commit to deploy, which is great. That's what we do. If we can find out where the waste is from a flow metric perspective, like measurable, not just, well, we know why it takes three days to write the application, takes eight ways to get into production because I got to fill out all these NFRs. I got all these forms. I've got these governance and risk compliant, all these service management things, forms I got to fill out. Instead of subjectively telling people, well, I know why it stinks. It takes three weeks to fill out your knucklehead forms as opposed to let me show you a chart of when developers start and they get seated for the project and it takes them, okay, it takes this long to get the first commit. Let's dissect that. And we find that five inches out of the 12-inch ruler are wasted on this one form. And then we go dissect that form and we find, and that wouldn't be flow metrics, but at least it's like finding out why Teresa moved to the floor. It's like, But if you could at least give me data to show me why is there four inches wasted here on this metaphoric ruler of time? I can now look into that and I can say, you know what? This is a report that nobody even uses. Yeah, We're wasting four out of the 12 inches of the metaphoric time on a form. Did anybody really care about this form? But nobody even knew that was the, anyway, that's the thing I talk about. Why I love flow metrics, why I think there's an incredible opportunity to dissect the left-hand side, which is pre-commit, all the way to sort of story or, or requirements or, and even you go beyond that, right? Then you can get into the business side too, but.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think we started it in reflecting back to six, seven years ago, right? Where the concern from Jez and others was, we've got this fuzzy front end, it's too hard to track. But then what I started realizing is, as we were, and this is actually went into project project, actually analyzing these value streams, two interesting things were notable First, the fuzzy finance work was being tracked quite a bit, right? As soon as you've got any kind of requirements, even old-school PPM and project plans, more new-school team-of-teams tools or product management tools, ideation tools, and so on, it's actually all there, and it looks just like what we see in a tool like Jira or Azure DevOps. It's quite structured, so we, we know when the clock starts, and if we can just figure out where those 10 inches come from, our teams would be a lot less frustrated. I think a lot of this for me Great. came from frustration as a developer on how long my wait states are. And then I think the thing right now is it's one thing when you've got very long wait states and you're not able to progress on things even while you've got an overly high flow load and width. But then I think the even bigger thing right now is if that's the bulk, if that's the bottleneck on your PD up on your flow and feedback loop, you're just not learning fast enough, right? You could have done all the right things in terms of automation. Not that everyone's done all the right things yet, but that at least that journey's maturing. And this is a great accomplishment, I think, of the DevOps movement, is just how far along some of the organizations are on that front. But if you've got those massive wait states and it's taking you three months, four months to actually learn. And then, by the way, John, the thing that I see also is when markets change faster, businesses pivot faster, and all of a sudden developers will have done a release cycle or two of work that gets tossed away because the learning came four months later. And the frustration that comes from that as a developer is just immense. My work was just thrown away after well, we toiled on it.
1: It's not only the moving faster. Like again, go back to some of Dr. Spears' work right, where he talks about there was a point where Toyota was doing cycles twice as fast as General Motors. They're getting two cycles in for every... Yeah. GM rev. And then the quality is like multiples, right? That's all about fast feedback. Everything you'd learn from either Mike Rother or Dr. Spear or anything in the lean community that where there's dissecting how Toyota succeeded, right, is great evidence of fast feedback, learning fast, introducing failure and learning from it. But you pointed out something else that's even like equally maybe more important, which is joy. When people are sitting out there in the edge and they're just, you see this all the time and they're like, I interview people. That's what I was doing before I Franklin to Red Hat. I do these interviews. I call the seven deadly sins, right? I would hear these people just screaming to me, John, if you could just tell leadership, they don't know what the heck's going on. Or I've been trying to tell them this for forever. And the problem is like, it's just voices. It's subjective voices. When you turn that into real data, then both sides get to see it. The person at the end is saying, here, let me show you exactly where we're wasting this money. And the leadership is like, oh, yes, now I see this. This is real data. And then it actually makes your job the burnout effect. How you optimize for business for learning fast and failing fast and learning fast, in, especially in pandemic times, but all times. Toyota Ono said two great quotes I love. Sloan said, we're not in the business of making cars. We're in the business of making money, right? And then Toyota Ono said, we're not in the business of making great cars, We're in a business of making great people who make great cars. And the point is, you need this symbiotic relationship of like efficiencies and people have to feel like joyful. You feel joyful about what you do. And if you're constantly, their voice is never heard or never showing them in that three inches that everybody knows about. And they're just screaming into the wind. Now, you show the data god and finally they saw it oh, great now i can get beyond that and move in and get more motivated anyway there's a big factor of all this sort of leads into sort of a, a virtuous cycle
0: yeah absolutely And that's why i'm so happy that as one of his five ideals in unicorn project gene made focused flow and joy yeah, one enjoy. of those right exactly, because yeah. and this is actually why i made in the flow framework happiness the happiness of the mm-hmm. people working on the value stream mm-hmm. is one of the poor metrics, because there are all these upfront weight states on the first 10 inches of the ruler. People aren't happy. If they're not getting a chance to invest in the architecture needed to make things flow faster, they aren't happy. And this is one, this is such an important, in my experience and in the data I've seen, leading indicator of the health of your value streams, right? When the architecture is misaligned, developers will quit. The flow load piles up, you're frustrated that you can't actually evolve the architecture, the deployment pipeline, basically wherever the friction's coming from. Joy goes down. Productivity tanks when joy goes down, of course. And there's actually some great work from Dan Studerman from Harvard Business School on how developers will, the more tangled an architecture they work with, the more likely developers are to quit on several large code bases that they studied.
1: I get to know Christina Maslach, actually brought her in to the DevOps community. She's spoken now. She's the probably the world's leading expert on occupational burnout. Mm-hmm. And she's uh, known for this canonical definition of burnout, and it's called MBI, the Maslow Burnout Inventory. And it has three factors in it. The first is basically exhaustion and overwork and death. I mean, some of that happens, but as an industry, I think we're a little better than that. The two other that are really interesting that play right into this joy factor, which is the two other indicators in this MBI, which is a measurement for burnout, which is cynicism. That point where the person walks in the room and they, they're in the stand with the meeting and the whole screen by the, the mid-level manager is green. And they're like, it's not green. They get pulled aside at the end of the meeting. Hey, don't say that in a meeting. But it isn't. Like and by the third meeting, they're like, yep, no, I agree. It's all green. That's yeah. a, a form of cynicism. Yeah. And then the other one is efficacy, right? With, to your point, when you study developers, at some point, They start one of the measurements of of this MBI or burnout scale right is am I feeling like my contributions or what I'm doing and not being heard or not the efficacy of what I'm doing here is not valued and then that's either you like get into a mode where like I don't care why should I work that hard they don't care or I quit
0: yeah exactly Go back to your point on this this temporary warehouse, this temporary office in Toyota, and and actually just relate this to an experience I had. Because in the end, we've got ways of I think with Flow Metrics of actually measuring happiness because people are very happy to if you give them enough safety to do so, they'll actually report that. Right? For me, the measuring a task stop. stopping measurement of employee engagement through employee net promoter score of silos, basically how happy are developers, how happy are admins and ops staff and so on, to value stream-based, it was just completely mind-blowing, right? Because we started uncovering real problems Mm -hmm. that we were pushing onto the teams or issues that we weren't addressing. And I'll actually give you one of these. I didn't realize it was so similar to this temporary warehouse that was put in that was slowing everything down. The part of the intersection of our dev and ops architecture, we needed to modernize some of the open source libraries we were using. Nothing too surprising and so on, but we were on some very long open source legacy, we needed to actually switch a couple different frameworks out. And everyone knew this, this was being done, but as we were consuming those from the latest open source projects that were reviewed, there was a temporary warehouse that was erected that wasn't there before because a lot of this, the way that we distributed to some of our customers, some of our OEM partners, the legal review warehouse got bigger and bigger and more and more stuff got stuck in it because of we were trying to evolve the licenses that we were consuming to be able to consume uh, some of these new projects. And this became, of course, this got reflected with frustration. Basically, flow slowed down, but it was really unclear. And the interesting thing, and this kind of goes back to the incidents, our code commit to code deploy, well, that looked great, right? Incidents were fine, but there's debt involved in using those libraries, not moving to the new ones, right? It could have generated 50 incidents if we didn't do it soon enough. There was this temporary warehouse that was created there, and all this manual process was dealing in that warehouse. Everything was batching within that. And it really, initially, a non-obvious way. This was four years ago or so. So we realized we can't do this. We can't actually focus on flow the way that we want on delivering value unless we automate that open source compliance checking as part of our pipeline. So we basically invested in that, and there are off-the-shelf solutions in there. You need to maybe customize them. But... All open source license compliance checking, all scanning the entire dependency chain of what you're consuming, because of course that's the tricky part. Is this is the long dependency chain of what you're consuming? It became very obvious. We need to get rid of that warehouse that had all these manual review, and that had to be automated as part of our governance processes, and with no human in the loop. Right? You consume something that way down the dependency chain has a has a license problem or a provenance problem. Build breaks that she's created. Everything's automatic. We've got the telemetry. So. You've actually been thinking about this. That's a small example, but it's been amazing to me that organizations I work with, they're just starting on that journey of bringing down these temporary warehouses. But tell us your thoughts on that.
1: This is the blessing and curse of complex systems, right? Which is the blessing is for students or the people who actually turn the switch on to try to understand what a complex data system and complexity means. It's like, Gorgeous, right? It's like this this whole way of thinking differently. It's it's moving from deterministic to non-deterministic, right? And complex, when you look at our systems, like you talk about NPS, right? You have to look at it from like lots of different angles. The more you get focused in on four metrics for everything, the less homage you pay to uh-huh. the, the, the the universal complex laws, right? And so the more you try to look at it from different ways, and flow is one, NPS is certainly one losing different tools. I go back to, I think one of my favorite stories in DevOps Handbook is the Courtney Kisses the, when she was at uh, Nordstrom. You know, every year they'd debate about the mainframe and the latency of the, the, the mainframe and almost like the the Mark Twain, like everybody argues about the weather, but nobody does any. Then the next year, the next year, and I'm, I'm sort of giving my own narrative to it. But So one year she decides to, you know what, I'm just going to do lean value stream mapping against this whatever we think this constraint is, this latency constraint with delivery on some of these mainframe things. And it turns out it was a form. It was just a form. It was a form that literally would a lot of times get thrown in the trash, sometimes never validated because of manual form. And it was actually an example where in order to fill out the form, you had to write the form from the operators, the mainframe operators sort of desk and terminals, and manually take it to like another floor to be able to type it into a system. Again, why that exists, maybe five years ago. As they're doing the lean value stream mapping, they see this. And basically, again, from my memory of it, like, they were like, well, wait a minute, well, let's just write a little JavaScript program and fix this. <laughs> Bang, next year, yeah. like, latent, a high percentage of the latency argument against the mainframe for this service just went away, right? The 10 inches of the problem was this form. Where two inches, where yeah, there's some things that mainframes still slow us down. We got the whole how do we place mainframe in our industry is, is a complex problem. But I mean, first order, anybody listening, and I know you get this because that's why I have like mind is you have to honor complex thinking. You have to be complex systems. You can't think that you can deterministically map out like a run book to solve everything. You have to flip your mindset that these are complex adaptive systems. They're non-deterministic. And the minute you embrace that, then it forces you to embrace failure. Because failure is just an output of an experiment, which is actually great. I got to find out that I was wrong. Awesome. Right? All those things cascade. So I, I think the most important thing about what we do is is really sort of buying into that most of our work in the systems that we work with are complex systems, like your example of sort of legal requirements, that happens. In a complex system, these things, these parts start showing up, they show up, they go away, they show up, they go away. And it forces us to take the reality check that if we're not looking at these things as dynamic and ephemeral in a lot of cases, and certainly always complex adaptive, that we're going we're gonna to lose insight.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think this to me is at the core of this disconnect between the way a lot of technologists understand the work that they do as a complex system. So much of business strategy treats technology work as an obvious or complicated system. So I want to dig into that, but I just want to give an example because at the core of project to product was my point is basically project management works for obvious or complicated systems. It does not work for complex. I went on to the this, I'll never forget this, about a year ago was on the project Mander's podcast. We were discussing this and this really big difference where if you're building even the largest building in the world, and the other person who was on this podcast was the, the main architect for the Burj Khalifa, right, the, the largest building in the world. That's not a complex system. That's a complicated system. There are no true unknowns, unknowns in that system, right? You know the kinds of concrete that you need. It's, it's extremely complicated, it's scale, but it's actually not a complex system. The laws of gravity or concrete or physics or the way you manage contractors won't change. So you can actually create a very long-term plan with an optimal resource allocation. And this is, I think, this this main disconnect that we've got business strategists and leaders treating software as a complicated system, as what a marketing launch is like, what tearing down a data center is like, as this kind of project. And we know it's not that. So I think John, every time you and I both leverage, at least for our own practices, the KNEF framework for thinking about this, I think you and I are both, this is a statement that you made a couple of weeks ago that, that really resonated for me. We're both concerned introducing it in our conversations with business leaders because it sounds overly yes, it, academic. Or it's a terrible
1: I'm, word spelling. It, there,
0: <laughs> it is. is. But I want us to take this opportunity to actually talk about this. Every time I hear you talk about it, I I do learn something new about its sense making, even though I think I know it well enough and it always turns out I don't. I would actually like you to take us through it in your own thinking, because I think understanding this framework will actually help people know why they can't treat software delivery, IT, DevOps, and their efforts around agile and platforms in the same way they treat their other business initiatives.
1: It is core. Kinevin, right, which is the uh, Welsh spelling, C-Y-N-F-I-N, right? That's the first starting point. So Jay Bloom, who I work with, says the first rule of the Kinevin Fight Club is never mention Kinevin. And then when a client or customer is in this probability mode of trying to figure out where they are from a sense making, then show them the properties. But it's this beautiful simplicity, right? First off, if you accept what I said in the previous discussion about you have to embrace complexity. Like, you have to embrace complexity. Then what Kinevan gives you is, and some people sort of get confused. We're so used to, like, getting handed something and, like, it's a new framework. Okay, where do I make the posters? How do I put the signs on the wall? Like, Kinevan is not one of those things. So everybody gets lost where the, where do I put it? Do I put it next to safe? Do I put it next to agile? Do I put it next to DevOps? The first thing is to try to get everybody off that cliff, right? Like, you don't put it anywhere. It's a cognitive dissonance. If you embrace complexity, you have to use different ways. NPS is a way to embrace complexity, complex adaptive system, right? Flow is a way. Kevin yeah. is another way to embrace complexity. And yeah. it has this beautiful simplicity in that it's basically five domains, right? It's a quadrant of lower right, which is I think we've now it's obvious. Obvious. <laughs> it's obvious. Some of the the name had changed a while back and it's obvious it was uh, be called simple at some point. There's counterclockwise. Upper right, you have uh, complicated and to the left, then you have complex and you have chaos. So here's the point, right? You point this out. I remember years ago, I, a friend of mine convinced me I was broke. I guess the gasket said blown. Away. I know nothing about car. I can't even change my own oil on my car, right? But some friend of mine fixed me. I could save a ton of money by taking the engine apart because then it's only like five bucks for the little liners in the gaskets. So I take the whole thing apart. Okay, great. I never was able to put it back together again. But that's a complicated system. Like even to me, that was like it to me. It personally felt like chaos when I was like, because like true mechanic would put all the parts in a certain order. (laughs) I didn't do that. So when it was time to put it back, like it's easy to take apart, but it was a complicated system. Like simple or obvious, right? Is obvious. Like it is starting with the lower right, which is it's a best practice, known knowns. It's things to document. You have high level expertise. If you move up to the complicated, it's good practice. It's sort of unknown knowns, like I didn't know if I could take a car apart. And if that was the only task I had did, I got an A on the project. It just needed enough expertise. I needed a couple of wrenches and stuff. And if I would have had my other buddy with me, I actually wound up selling the car. He put it back together, (laughs) but he had high expertise. That's a complicated system even to put it back. You get into complex, now you're dealing with emergent. It's what they call unknown knowns. It's limited expertise. And so the example I like to use there is, Your CEO comes to you, you're the head of engineering of an organization. They say, cloud on Monday. Sorry, bud. And then so you're like, okay, well, we're a bunch of smart people. We know cloud is just, it's a variance of virtualization. We're really good at that stuff. And we know it's just all that stuff, right? We go out and Google and we find three or four experts and like who we respect in the industry. And we're like, we can do this. And then what you do is say, okay, well, these three people... Basically, say a little variant on what they think the way we should do this. Should we use the Amazon tools specifically and lock in? I'm not. I'm not driving that guy. Or, or non-lock in and write our own stuff. you Open, so like MySQL. Should we use their RDS or MySQL? Right? We don't know. One person yeah. says got a whole bunch of dissertations on why you should use RDS. Another person who's equally expert says you shouldn't. So what do we do in the complex? We experiment. Like maybe we take three or four of the experts. We t- we break out our teams or maybe we have, tw- hey, boss, I need 20 people for this. Why? Well, we're going to have to do uh, probably four or five experiments. You want it by Monday? <laughs> Let's uh, get, I need 20 people over the weekend to do this, right? I'm, I'm fooling around here, but okay, great. So, But now we can, by Monday, obviously, maybe a month, two months, whatever the real, realistic goals are, our timelines. We can come up with like, yeah, we're smart people. We tried Bob, Sue's, and Jane's versions. We think Jane's version is the best for us. That's a complex. Chaos is you have no boundaries. Like uh, example, I was giving a friend the other day, which was three years ago when really there was nothing about quantum computing. Nothing, right? Let's go. Yeah, it's actually three years ago. So the boss comes to you with the same problem domain and says, Monday, I want quantum computing working. No buts. I want computing working by Monday. Everybody knows I'm joking, but not too far, though. <laughs> some really nasty, terrible CEOs out there. And then you like, you go Google and there's nothing. There's some like science experiment in Haifa Labs or in somewhere that like, it's all like cryptic math. And like, okay, we've got to do it. So what we do is we say, you know what? We're going to basically define our own path. There's no... Better or worse path out there, as far as we can tell. We're pretty smart. We're pretty smart people. The boss says we got to do it. We're going to roll up our sleeves. And the really important thing in chaos is it's not a parallel experiment. It's everybody gets that true north, and we basically start driving. Now, we should, we'll should we do sort of minor PDCA's. We'll always act like scientists. And I think you're right. I think most of our world that we deal with is in the complex domain and i think most of the problems that most managers or leaders in organizations don't understand how to differentiate between the word you know one of the biggest problems in the early days of kaneven was and i myself saying yeah let me explain kaneven it's a, no no it's a, oh, wait wait give me a second it's complex you know what i mean like you would even get the complicated again complex yeah. lexicon stutter stuff right it's sort of fair to say well our leadership obviously would have a hard time understanding the distinction between those domains there's a fifth domain which is disorder but so again why can evidence interesting when it's this beautiful simplicity of creating this another sort of variant of cognitive dissonance to force us to think around the true nature of physics of the world we deal with complex adaptive systems all systems are in a sense complex some of them are like car engines that could be taken apart and put together for a novice that seems complex and then other systems are enforcing us to use this mapping of, of being able to see where we are. And, and it's called a sense making framework, right? But then, even framework is, I think, not a good word. Yeah, and
0: I, I think that's a super effective and kind of, to me, a, a beautiful way of looking at it is that organizations need and leadership needs to understand that the physics and dynamics, that basically the, the complex system dynamics of what their business is now built on as they're leaning into digital. Every developer out there understands the physics of of making buildings, right? And the core of engineering and never fails to appreciate that. And I think the big concern, the big disconnect I saw is that a business in Mandrillo structure was created over top of what was assumed to be a complicated and an obvious problem whereas it's a complex problem. So this is, I think you nailed one of the biggest pieces of evidence I see all the time. If at a leadership and strategy level, there isn't a mechanism and approach to your experimentation, if you've not put that into place, you haven't acknowledged that you're working with a complex dynamic system. And software and the interaction of software with the market, with competitors, with changes in the market Mm -hmm. is complex. So already, if your answer to that is no, we've not put in place a, a way of structuring at a business and technology level, but structuring experiments, measuring their outcome, determining whether they were successful or failure, you've actually not acknowledged that you're a software company. And just
1: knowing where you are, right? Like, I mean, just the, the simple fact that it's simplistic five domains, four that we disorder. Again, that's a more complicated or complex discussion. But the four domains of whether you sit in obvious, complicated, or complex or chaos, again, I would argue most of the interesting problems bounce between complicated and complex. But just knowing where you are to make sense of it, and then they do give you some reasonably prescriptive processes, like they think about sensing and categorizing analysts. And again, we won't go through all of those, but but they also give you sort of a first starter kit of tools. So, like, if you can figure out where you are, like, again, have we been asked to do cloud and we have no expertise and no consultants, so we have to do parallel experiment? Most likely, we're sitting in a complex domain. And then now we have this little bit of, like, okay, well, that's a probe, sense, and respond, right, to parallel experiments. Anyway, it's nothing more, nothing less. I think most people get hung up on, like, honestly, I think and myself included in the early days trying to understand this is thinking I don't understand it yet. (laughs) This constant, like, yeah, I just can have it. I just don't understand it yet. But like, just say, yes, you do understand it. It's just, it's really a beautiful, simplistic model for, for creating quadrants to try to understand
0: complex. Yep. That's why I try to kind of simplify. It's like projects are good for complicated obvious. They're not. You need products with flow and feedback right. for anything complex. John, I had this big aha moment when we were chatting earlier in terms of, say, a startup, right? Because a startup is this chaotic thing. And what you just said is that with chaotic North Star, you need to quickly act and then respond to what you learn. And you don't have time to run multiple experiments, right? Let's say a tech startup cannot run five experiments in parallel. It has to basically go straight, everyone going to the North Star. And if you hit a wall, you pivot. And then if you don't have enough runway, you die, right? And
1: it's truly novel too, right? I mean, in that case, I mean, even going to cloud, we know that a lot of people have done it. But like going to quantum computing five years ago, that's purely novel. Or if I'm doing startup, why are you creating a startup? Most points, it's because nobody else has done this before.
0: That's right. Nobody's done it this way or this kind of business model exactly. So then as we were chatting, say uh, venture capitalists, right? Their portfolio of startups is not chaotic. It's complex because – they're running many experiments effectively, what, having this large portfolio of startups, some portion of which will collapse, and run out of money, some portion of which will succeed, and so on. So they're actually taking something that's chaotic, which is exploring a, a new market segment, innovating the market segment, and turning to something complex. And then as you said that, I thought, wow, this is amazing, right? This is what we want. This is what innovative tech companies do. They turn something that might feel chaotic, like how the hell do we survive in the post-COVID world and move digital this quickly, The smart companies will make a portfolio of experiments, some of them might be larger and more expensive experiments, right? And they measure it. I think the key thing is once you've got the experimentation, you need a fast feedback loop on measurement. And by the way, that was one of the other, for me, the other key things about getting flow metrics out there is that if your feedback loop, and this is, I think, you know, something meaningful to you as well, if your feedback loop is only financial revenue results, well, that's too slow right? You can't have a six or 12 month feedback loop on your experiments. It's crazy. You need both the financial metrics in the feedback loop, the customer metrics like active users and user engagement and so on. And also the flow metrics is, are we able to pour resources into this experiment and get value out in the form of software? I mean, do you think that's right? Is that we're trying to help these companies go from something that feels chaotic to them or is chaotic and make it simplify it into complex?
1: Well, so, I mean, again, I'll, I'll go back to why my icon on Twitter is Dr. Deming. I think all things lead back to Dr. Deming. I think we don't have time to explain all the things we've talked about today to lead back to Deming, but I'll give you one example that we both know well, which is Eric, Ries's lean startup, and he's got a whole tribute to Deming in the end, but basically MVP, pivot, all those things, right, were so sort of shocking to everybody at the time when well, he started with his lessons learned, right, blog and his, his own startup. And he was just writing these blogs about this and it became so popular. He wrote a book and now it's an industry, right? Which is Lean Startup, which is really just what you're talking about. It's even prior to sort of Lean Startup. And what's beautiful about all that is there was this, was trying to explain to somebody the the beauty of, you know, somebody was saying, you, Gene, and a couple other people would be congratulated for this DevOps room. And I'm like, well, oh, wait a minute, shoulder giants. Secondly, there was this beautiful convergence happening. Open source, like this happened, It's called the Cambrian Explosion, right? You had open source. You had sort of lean startup, like all these startups. And then we were codifying this thing called DevOps. Meanwhile, you had Agile and all these things happening. So this primordial soup started emerging. But lean startup was a big part of that with he was defining a lexicon in a way for business, certainly even startups. Remember the startups, you go back prior to Eric Reese's uh, Lean Startup book. You go to a university and they're teaching startups. It was all about sort of financials. And you've done this. You've done a bunch of startups. Mm-hmm. How those terrible, terrible business case spreadsheets of how much you're going to make in the three, first three years, how much you're going to make in the five years, right? Eric Reese tore that all apart. My last startup that I did that I sold to Docker, like when the VC started asking for that business case spreadsheet, we were like, next. Honestly, like, you no. Know, if that's what you're thinking about, what we're, we're trying to build SDN into Docker, into an emerging tech that's flying off the chart. And if what you want to know is what our five-year revenue is going to be as part of the funding, like, we got the wrong VC. And we found the right VC. It was the guy who actually invested in Nasira. He was the first rounder in STC. Sure. Lightspeed basically was our investor. Three months later, we're sold to Docker. Right. But the point is that's all because Eric Reese blew that wide open. Figuring out how your product to market fit is, is so many things different than what your three to five year spreadsheet. revenue <laughs> stream. Come on. Like Demi would have puked on any of those spreadsheets, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think, so we're saying that this is it. I think that Part of it is obviously you've had a chance to apply it. I've been, and and Eric Reid is building on the shoulders of Steve Blank oh yeah see so oh yeah uh, on
1: Success this epiphany one of my favorite yeah. all-time books. oh that, yeah.
0: that book even with all the grammatical errors i don't know when it got edited but it was it, to me it's one of the best books of all time
1: grammatical error people book writers yeah Unite. Exactly. I'm, I'm in that club
0: <laughs> yeah oh no it's, <laughs> it's editors. Not the best books yeah exactly i think it was rushed but then the redone version of that book i thought it was actually startup owner's manual missed some of that the flair of the original yeah, but, yeah also a good book i highly recommend startup yeah no, no but I think the key thing is, is that fast feedback loop. And so some of the problems I see is that in a startup, the financial, that the usage, the adoption feedback loop can be really fast, right? And there's no sense to make a five-year plan or a 3 year plan when you're learning that quickly. And then in these larger enterprise organizations, their feedback loop to market is really slow, which is, like, again, why I think yeah. these metrics within value streams yeah. are so important, yeah. right? Whether they're the happiness metrics, whether they're the flow metrics, they're and key you, because you can't learn in and, the six to 12-month cycle.
1: The, the really depressing part about IT and enterprise is waterfall budgeting. Yeah, It's banks that basically today in 2020, top 10 banks, top five banks, that will tell me that budgeting is done at the CEO level and it's run the bank, change the bank. And so meanwhile, you have all this edge activity with SRE and this and this. But at the end of the day, the waterfall budget is already predetermined And then everybody is scrambling in this like 2.5 trillion worth asset controlling financial institution, trying to figure out what is run the bank and what's changed the bank. Is running a platform run the bank? or? Anyway, at the end of the day, that's the part like we have to sort of decimate, like somehow we have to sort of get leadership at the highest level of these multi-multi-billion, close to trillion-dollar. Fortunately these days, I mean, you said this very well in some of your presentations, the top 10, you go back 20 years ago, were the sort of large legacy enterprises that think like this. Now, a majority of the top 10 and certainly most of the tr- trillion-dollar market cap companies don't think like they think exactly what we're talking about. Like they don't do waterfall budgeting. The biggest thing like as leaders, you, Gene, me, and like just Damon, and just a, a long list of a whole bunch of people we would run out of time, but we have to change leadership's mind and how just budgeting works. When we talk about the old startup domain where you had to show up with a spreadsheet that showed you one year, three year, five year, and everything sort of lined out and all. Imagine how silly that was. You're starting with three people and somehow you're building a spreadsheet that's going to show office costs five years from now, not knowing that like the whole world would change where nobody has offices anymore. I mean, the idea of even putting one of those together now it seems to me like the old phones that we used to have. That's the way enterprises are today. They're like the old VCs. They basically want to know the yearly budget, the cycle of depression of, of, of budgets. I mean, it's the, like first quarter we're good, we got some breathing room. Second quarter we probably ought to get started. Third quarter panic starts to seek in. Fourth quarter, you're like, oh, my God, how do we triage this mess yeah. we've got in budget? And that's what happens every year in almost every top 10 bank in the world.
0: And not just the banks, exactly. I, I know. But it, I'm just using yeah. banks as example. No, it's, you're right. it's, a, it's, it's a great example because the, the amount that they're funneling into their digital platforms, their modernization, meanwhile, there's this complete impotence mismatch. But yeah. I yeah. think it's at least we are seeing some organizations starting to fund product value streams and measure product yeah, value Yeah, no,
1: I, I agree. And that's very- so,
0: But it's slow. It's it's yeah, extremely yeah. frustrating. And this run the bank- It's got the started the top too. It's on us and this community to keep changing that yeah. perspective. And I think, yeah, you could not have put it better. And it's a, it's a good place to end it. But any last thoughts? Because I think people are listening to a, a small portion of what you said. I think they'll- thrive much better through this much more quickly changing world. They'll have better sense-making tools for how to think about complexity and avoid these pitfalls of assuming they can plan out a three-year future through this.
1: I think the best thing that I've learned about having interactions with you, Mick, is we agree on maybe 70% of things here. And the things we agree on are like core, right? Scientific method thinking. (laughs) The beauty of that is like cherishing what makes our community great is that we can be egoless we can be walk into a room, and you're really, really, you're better than I am at this, honestly. You keep a smile on your face. and I'm, I get
0: frustrated. Like, As we're disagreeing, exactly.
1: <laughs> but, but you're a better scientist than I am. But uh, yeah, I think the more we can go into and embrace our disagreements, very much like we tell everybody about FalFAST fast and technology side. I think we still struggle, even in a great community like DevNet Enterprise, to be able to walk in a room and tell Gene Kim he's wrong. Like very few people will do that or can do that. But, like, to be able to do it and, and know that when you tell Gene Cummings you're wrong, he's like, why? Or he'll call Courtney in and say, Courtney, do you agree with John, right? I've had that experience. Like, I think for us to embrace and be proud of our differences and not let those get into sort of tug of wars and, and be able to talk about them out loud and express them and realize that we're doing it as what Stephen Spear would say as a community of scientists continually experimenting.
0: It's been such a key part of our learning, our learning how to best support the community, the people who benefit from this community, trying to apply these practices, right? And, yeah, exactly. I think with you, with Gene, Dominica, the grandest as well. It's like, why do you call that lead time? That's cycle time. Let's, you know, let's dig into that. And then then digging into that becomes this big and and very impactful exploration. No, and just to Um,
1: make you blush one more time if we end, is that the one thing I like so much about you is I can do a full frontal attack on an idea that you have. And then your first response is very sort of Toyota-like. It's like, John, I I want to understand more why you think that. And there's very few people in our industry that can do that, especially when you've taken deep sort of ownership. Like if you said to me, I've had people say, well, I think Deming is basically overrated. Okay, (laughs) let's break out the wrestling mat, buddy. But be able to be able to say, wait, okay, all right, let's tell me why you think. And you're really, I mean, I think you're extraordinary at that and much better scientist than I am. I'm telling other people to, to not be like me, be like you. Like, let's have those kind of that I can come to you and say, I think your opinion is wrong. You don't get defensive about it because that's how we'll actually move this. We'll move the ball here in a lot of things we do. doing.
0: Thank you, John. I try. And I think without people actually challenging the ideas, because I think we do have too many people just following the banging and I think you've been challenging this whole community to think critically and avoid the group thing, right? Because I think we're yes. maturing these practices, which is great. But then, again, to help scale them right now and to help adopt them, we need to understand where we're failing in communicating them and making them accessible enough and so on. You and Sam Guggenheimer, I think, tell me wrong more than anyone. And I <laughs> know, that's I, funny. I yeah. Profoundly value that because it's, it's changed my thinking more than anyone. So,
1: so, so I'll end with this. Thinking. Adam Jacob would always say this. Strong opinions loosely held. Yeah. And I that's think right. that's a beautiful way to go about acting like a scientist.
0: Excellent. Well, John, thank you so much. Where can people find you when they really want to learn more about?
1: Yeah, I mean, this terrible icon that I've created called Bacchica It's pretty easy to find. But I think if you Google John Willis, I'm actually Willis at redhat.com now. People do tend to have a lot of sort of markups in their address book with me because I change a lot. I'll probably be at Red Hat for quite a while, but Bacchica Loop is the best place. To, that's my permanence, if you will.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, John. Really appreciate that. And until next time.
1: It was fun, Mick. Thank you.
0: A huge thank you to John for joining me on this episode. For more, follow me in my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags #mickplusone One or Project Product. You can reach out to John on Twitter, at BocciaGalupe. And note that we have a new episode every two weeks. So hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project the Pride to get the book, and remember that all author proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.